You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Mean O'Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, comment us on Twitter, get us on Instagram, podcast, iHeart, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, feel free to listen to us there. So let's jump into it. My guest today, uh, most folks would not think that we have an alliance, um, which is ironic because that's part of the name of the non-for-profit um, advocate and advocacy group that this dynamic young woman, and I'm calling her young because she she's a little bit younger than I am, put together. I want to welcome the president, the CEO, the founder of Pittsburgh's Alliance for Police Accountability, Miss Brandy Fisher. Welcome to the show. Well, what an intro. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> Thank I you am, for having me here. You know, I am so excited to talk because we are in 2023. And, you know, since the um, public execution of George Floyd, Michael Brown, all of these, Eric Gardner, very public facing, Tyree Nichols, um, Tamir Rice events, you know, people got on to the Black Lives Matter moment at that point in time um, when there were high profile events, right? So we always have these people who come along afterwards. But you know what? Um, this sister from Pittsburgh, you started Alliance for Police Accountability long before any hashtags hit the scene like Black Lives Matter, because you were screaming at the top of your lungs, Black Lives Matter in Pittsburgh. And you were appalled by some of the events that were occurring there and people were being silent. Can you talk to us a little bit about Brandy Fisher and why you were stirred and moved in 2010, long before Michael Brown, and before Trayvon Martin to, to, to get involved in the Alliance or creating the Alliance for Police Accountability? Uh, sure. It, it actually, you know, surprisingly, it really wasn't um, just solely the issue of policing. It was the fact um, at the time I was running a um, learning center. And so my passion has always been youth. Um, and I was watching the news and I saw a single mom, uh, which I related to, on the news um, crying. And she was crying because her 17-year-old son um, had been brutally beaten by three undercover police officers who just so happened to be white. And when she went to pick him up from jail because he was also arrested, she could not recognize him. Um, that's how badly he was beaten. And... You know, sitting watching that, 
you know, I was a single mom. Um, I had two children just like she did. And uh, my son um, and the young man, Jordan, who was on the news, were about two years apart from one another in age. And I asked myself, if this was me, what would I do? Who do you call on the police? And because I could not find an answer, um, and because, you know, the story that I heard behind how badly they beat this 17-year-old, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my son. He's 15 at the time, six foot. You know, I can take him down myself. And I'm like, there's three trained, oversized men who beat this kid. And, and, and there's no accountability. And so, you know, that brought me off the couch. That brought me off the house. Um, that brought me out into the community um, to help this family get some justice. So for those of you who are listening and may not be familiar with what occurred, um, in 2010, we had this young man, um, barely 18 years old, a senior in high school who attended one of the premier public high schools in the city of Pittsburgh. It was the the classical center for music and performing arts, um, better known as Kappa at that time um, in Pittsburgh. And he was a classical, um, you know, the equivalent of, of someone who would play the cello, right? Um, he was a classical cello. He had never been arrested, celloist. Um, he had never been arrested. He was in his own neighborhood of Homewood. Um, it's cold. It's in the winter. And he's walking from his maternal grandmother's house, because we all go to mom, grandma house, right, in the winter when it's cold, um, and before, you know, to get that hot meal, before our parents go home. And it's dark, as is Pittsburgh is, around 6 p.m. It is dark in Pittsburgh during the winter. Um, and he's cold. And he's walking in this neighborhood called Homewood. H. Wood, y'all know I represent 15208. That's where I'm from. And he's walking with the community, white folk call high crime communities as a way to, to label us and to, to corral us into a space where they can do things to us, like search us or, or beat us um, and things of that nature in the court's packet. But he's in that community. And three white males, he's 150 pounds. Like he's 150. It is soaking wet because it's cold winter out there. They are all 175 or higher in their weights. They are trained in Krav Maga. This is this um, grappling, wrestling style of, 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 doing, um, of subduing individuals. And by the end of that encounter with this gentleman who they have no reason to stop, except that he is walking in his neighborhood too close to a building in the winter um, and it's dark, they beat the crap out of him to the point they rip his his dreads out of his hair, um, out of his head, large gaping um, holes. The They shove him in a bush. The bush goes up through the soft palate of his chin and out his mouth. Um, and then they continue to start knee striking him to the point of basically he thinks he's going to die. All because the famous, he won't give us his hands. His hands are on his waistband, and we think he's reaching for a gun. That they also yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me something to think about. say is a, a Mountain Dew bottle. Like somebody's going to ask for a cold, refreshing drink in the middle of getting their ass whooped. That they oh, they sorry, podcast people. That they want a Mountain Dew, a cold, refreshing moment in that. So, I mean, that's the story behind what was happening. You know, and the interesting thing about that is they beat him with a flashlight. 
right? They never admitted it, um, but uh, they beat him with a flashlight. He has permanent brain damage to this day. Um, we still talk about him. Um, we're even opening a youth engagement center and his namesake. Um, but, you know, and he played the viola and he had just played for, at the time, President Barack Obama and his wife. Um, that's how prestigious the school he attended was. Um, they were invited to the White House to play for the president. And so he had just got back from doing that just a couple of months prior to this situation happening. Um, and he was only about four doors up from his own house when this occurred. You know, and so it's his neighborhood is where he lived, uh, where people were often profiled. And that's what exactly happened to him. He was a black man in what they call, as um, the chief, chief B stated, um, you know, a high crime area. But they were in an unmarked car, um, pulled up on him very fast. And the first thing he did was run before he even had a chance to see who was in the car, getting out of the car. Um, and that is what happens here in Pittsburgh. And they're known for that. You know, you run from the police, you're going to pay. You know what, you're... you're you strike a chord here. You're saying, hey, listen, I'm sitting there. I'm looking at my son who could have been Jordan Miles, um, giving honor to his full name, Jordan Miles, and what he could have been and what could have occurred to him. And you're like, if I was that mother, I would not know where to turn. And so you start looking for places that might be able to help somebody like her in that moment and realize there's nothing. There's nobody to call when you want to call the police on the police. And all you can do is call the police, right? Like every avenue there was to file a complaint is with the chief. It's with um, a department that is still connected to the police department. There was no independent place or body to go that I would trust, that anyone would trust or could trust to say that they're going to really investigate this um, I can, I, I'm probably going to see an inkling of justice or somebody's going to help me because all of the entities that existed were still collect, connected to the police department. Right. Including internal affairs, right? Who's police of police. And Pittsburgh has a civilian review board. Like they had one of the first ones in the nation, a formally, formally established board that came out of the consent decree right around 1997 that people to this day don't trust and don't believe that they will ever get any justice out of that system um, based on who heads it, the connections with the department, um, and the fact that it does not operate independently. When you are funded by the same organizations that are supposed to investigate you, like you would never want to put yourself out of business. And, and, and that's what happens. And when we started to um, advocate um, for Jordan, Miles, you know, one of the things that I realized is how important bringing awareness to these issues are, right? People speak negatively about protests, um, but it's it's the only way we've gotten this far, even if you if you want to go back to the 60s and before, um, it's the only way we've gotten it, um, this far and seen the progress that we have seen. But, and even we see what happened with 2020, you know, with the uprising after George Floyd, um, they don't hear you until they see you. And so they see you in large amounts and so they see you in large numbers. Um, but it's very important to bring awareness to this issue. And I really do believe, because we did send um, 
you know, information to the White House. We're like, oh, we have a black president. You know, he should do something about this. He was just there with him. And we were sending orange envelopes, purple envelopes, all these color envelopes so they could stand out. Um, and they received it. Uh, they actually were able, they, they seen it. Um, and their response was to start a special division here um, with our with the U.S. attorney in Western Pennsylvania focused on civil rights. And so, you know, one thing I always tell people, you know, is do not believe the hype. Do not believe that, um, you know, protesting, do not believe that advocating and standing up, and you know, doesn't work. And they only want to tell you that because they know it does. <laughs> Right. You know, um, I'm going to quote one of my favorites, um, Dr. Jonathan White. He is from Penn State University, McKeesport campus. Shout out to Brother White. Also works in, uh, does a lot of youth work in Braddock, head of the, the Langston Hughes Poetry Society in Pittsburgh. This brother got it going on. But let me tell you something he said to me probably about 10 years ago that stuck with me. And, and it just resonated with what you just said. He said, protest is the most powerful expression of powerlessness. Protest is the most powerful expression of powerlessness. And you just said that when we feel like we can't, there's no other avenues. The only thing we have left is our bodies and our voices. So I'm gonna ask you this. It's also a place of healing. Right, but I'm gonna ask you this, right? Because we, you know, people see these things 10, 13 years later, and they're like Alliance for Police Accountability. Well, you know, everybody's looking at civilian oversight and things like that. You were groundbreaking on this, right? That this would be a grassroots community owned initiative. I'm sure that went real easy for you in the community and for the police, um, as well as the local district attorney's office. I'm sure my sister, you walked in there and they said, I see you, I hear you. Yes, we buy in. How'd that go for you? I was seriously blackballed um, <laughs> because, as you noted, this was in 2010. This was before the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, this was not something that was popular. It was not something people were seeing or hearing. And I was very, you know, outspoken. And because we were grassroots, because we galvanized people, you know, from the community, and most of the people were directly impacted. Right. And when you heard the story, um, they told their stories through the pain, um, you know, and so they weren't always nice in their words, um, you know, but they didn't mince them and nor should they have. And, you know, I think any time that you come up against a power construct, any time that you are coming up against an institution, um, you know, there's money involved. And when people see you coming for their jobs. Um, they see you coming for, for what they perceive as their livelihoods because, you know, policing, police officer, it's a, it's, a, it's a job. And so if you're saying that this person doesn't need to be a police officer, they feel like you're, you're coming for their livelihood. But one of the things that I've said then and I still say today and I always say is the purpose of law enforcement is supposed to keep us safe. Right. The purpose of law enforcement is to enforce laws and um, deter crime or to to end crime. They're supposed to be, respond to someone breaking the law. Shouldn't we want to not need police officers? Shouldn't the goal be to not have crime 
shouldn't that be where we are headed to? And if we are actually and factually trying to reduce crime, then we should say we're not going to need as many police officers as we have when we have a lot of crime. Um, so the goal, a lot of, one of my mentors told me as a person in a nonprofit is that you're supposed to organize yourself out of a job because you don't want the needs to continue to exist that you're supposed to be meeting. It's the same idea that I have when it comes to law enforcement. You should be working yourself out of a job, but because you should not want to be needed. And for some reason, that's unpopular. For some reason, that makes you, you know, um, demonized or anti-police. And no, we are pro-public safety. We are pro-people. And, you know, when you're looking at that, um, you know, the ultimate goal should be for us not to, to continue having as much crime as we do every day. Right. Which goes against the argument, right, that, which is interesting, is that we need more police in order to deter law and order. But when we've had lots of police, like we did in the 90s, um, the 80s, the early 2000s, you can't tell me Pittsburgh was at some of its highest levels of policing with 1,200, 1,300 officers. Um, it had some of its most violent crime. And then, you know, and we put all these programs in place under the Uniform Crime Act, you know, the three strikes you're out bill, created the cops initiative out of um, under Clinton. We put more money into cops to deter crime and it didn't change, right? So it, it can't be the one-on-one, one-for-one. One body reduces crime. We know the absence of crime and disorder has nothing to do with police. We know bodies will displace crime, but it does not replace crime, right? It does not um, hold that space. So I'm going I'm to make it a little bit more personal um, between the two of us, right? Um, do you recall our first meeting? Our first meeting? No, but I will say this, and I did want to say this earlier. I didn't know if I should, though. You can um, say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. So, you know, on the fact that, you know, what made it hard, you know, what made it hard was having a district attorney who didn't like being called racist, um, who falsely charged me twice, right, as in retaliation, um, hoping to make me be quiet, hoping to make me be scared. Um, you know, and I was just, you know, uh, a regular mom. I was a teenage mom. I had two kids, you know, by the age of 19, I was teaching Sunday school when I seen this happening and had a child care center. So I didn't know this radical ferociousness was inside of me, um, until I began to look at every person who was brutalized as my child. And, um, and so when, you know, there were people I was trying to connect with, um, and since I was in church so much, I wasn't really in the community. And so there were people I was trying to connect with, people I was meeting, and they were telling me, we were told not to be seen talking to you. We were told not to, you know, they would really like get away from me quickly. Um, you know, I'm sorry, we were told not to be seen talking to you. And so, you know, one of the tactics and tools, um, you know, that, that, that I like to say the enemy, the opposition uses is to isolate you. It's to make you feel alone uh, because then you'll probably go away if you have no support. But one of the things that kept me going was my faith in God. Um, you know, knowing that I was never alone, knowing that I was going against people or an entity that wasn't more powerful than who was on my side, 
kept me in the game and kept me motivated and kept me moving. But then, you know, with all the opposition I was getting and, you know, you know, feeling and being blackballed and being told that, you know, uh, people were not supposed to be seen with me, you know, which normally could have been very discouraging. And, and it kind of was, you know, very discouraging in the beginning. Um, you know, I wanted to give up. I wanted to quit several times. But, you know, during that journey um, and, and maintaining my faith in God, I think the pivotal moment for me, honestly, was to meet a police officer um, who also was the supervisor of these officers that had brutally beaten Jordan, who spoke truth of the situation, right? You have to imagine, you hear, you see the news, you know, everybody is saying, well, he was reaching for this, like he deserved what happened to him. He was in this high crime area. He ran from the police. You know, the police are always right. They find some story, some narrative to, to make their actions right or justified. But when you had the supervisor of these police officers, when you had another law enforcement officer saying that these actions were wrong, oh my God. It was just like, wait a minute, am I hearing this correctly? Am I seeing this right? And it was like, it wasn't a surprise that it was a black woman because that's what we do. But it was just like, who is this person? I need to meet this person. Who is this person who is saying that these officers were wrong? Right. And so and that person, no other than, you know, Chief be here, um, which is why people are shocked that we have an alliance. Right. Um, that we have a connection, that we have a friendship because they're like, she's a police officer. Then she was a police chief. And then, you know, you want her to be a part of, you know, the organization and, and leading the organization. What are you doing? Um, and I've often told people that we're not anti-police, we're anti-bad police. And, you know, it was so refreshing and encouraging, you know, in a moment where I wanted to quit to meet someone who said, you know, they're, they're lying on this report. Right. Normally, everybody goes by what the police report said. To have another law enforcement officer saying this report is full of lies. It was powerful. And it also was encouraging, more importantly, to the family. And I think that's what matters the most um, are these families in this situation. You know what? You're you're right. The, the system will come after you like the system will come after you. Um, the one thing I learned about being in Pittsburgh and then later in Charlottesville is how invested people are in the system and their unwillingness to let it go. Like I underestimated them in Charlottesville. You know, I thought after the Unite the Right rally and you think like in Pittsburgh, after Jordan Miles, after Leon Ford, after a consent decree, after all these things that people would really be invested in dismantling these systems because you're on display for the whole world to see. So you would think that's what they would want, but you find out in not so subtle ways that everything about who they are, their wealth, their identity, their power structures are invested in these systems. And when you come after the system, they will bring the full force of that system after you. And I remember, you know, very similarly as I'm opposing um, and very publicly saying officers lied on the report. There's a cover-up um, that um, they needed to be terminated. They needed to be prosecuted. 
the system came after me. The district attorney started finding reasons to want to charge me, me with crimes as well. I know he was trying to find them with you. This is the same district attorney who currently sits in Allegheny County, who lost the Democratic nomination for district attorney. So decided to stay in power. He would then run as a Republican. Uh Like, how dare you? Because it doesn't tell me it's about justice. It's about power at that point. Right. Because you shouldn't be running for with a a um, party affiliation that you don't agree with their norms and their values. And then the norms and the values of that party, particularly around that area, that Allegheny machine is very anti-black. And I only just want to correct you with one thing. A friend of mine said to me once when I said something very similar about being blackballed or blacklisted, she said that we're whitelisted. We're white, we're white, we're, we're not blackballed, we're whiteballed out of there because we have no power and they just create systems um, and they know how to leverage them too. Like, and they can keep coming and they will wear you down. But you didn't give up. Obviously, I haven't given up on this stuff. Out of this rose this amazing organization called Alliance for Police Accountability. And I want all of our podcast listeners out there to know about the organization um, and its purpose, its mission, how they can connect with you, how they can contribute to your work. Um, better yet, how to give my sister here just a breather break, um, you know, so she can do some of the stuff that she needs and wants to do in life, like just buy a house so she can be in a stable environment for her and her family to do the work. So talk to me about Alliance for Police Accountability. Now is an authentic, not-for-profit identity that you have struggled to bring to to fruition for the last 13 years. And I do want to just touch on, you know, a couple of things um, that I think is important before I go into the organization, um, just about the work. You know, when we were advocating for Jordan, the goal was we're going to get justice for Jordan Miles and everybody's going to go back home and, you know, do their lives. Um, Many people came forward um, and so many people came forward saying the same thing happened to them. You know, and our community has been severely traumatized by police violence, by neglect, by the uh, violence of poverty. And, you know, you would have thought everybody would have been happy in a community because we were standing up. But some people felt neglected. Some people who were beaten and nobody knew about it and nobody was fighting for them thought, oh, you only care because he's a high honor roll student. You know, where were you when this happened to me? And so, you know, our people were, were deeply hurt. And so we had to build relationships with the community um, to and, and build trust. Because how many nonprofit organizations come out here and end up working with the establishment? Right. right. Um, meaning they're working with them um, behind the scenes because you have to work with people if you're going to get anything done, if you're going to get policies changed, if you're going to get laws changed and laws enacted, but not work with them to keep our people down. And, you know, and so we had to build a lot of trust. Um, and so I do want to just remind people, you know, that this work is about relationships. Um, and, and it really is. It's about the relationships you build across um, the street, but it's also about the the relationships you build on the, from the other side. And what I mean by that, you know, the organization, um, how it came about was very organic, very needs-based. 
We never stood back and said, oh, we need to, to build this type of programming. And the one thing about it is I funded the organization for the first eight years out of my pocket. Um, I had a child care center. And I think that is what helped us really build authentic power because we didn't answer to anyone. Right. We could say what we wanted to say. I was able to call the racist DA a racist DA and not have to worry about somebody snatching money from me. Right. Um, and I did not realize until he started charging me um, that, you know, he was going to come after me that way. But this work is really real. And when you are these constructs have been into place, you know, since slavery, since America, this is like American culture, um, you know, this violence. Um, you look at, at black people as a commodity. Um, you know, that has been going on for decades and centuries in our country. And these are just new ways to continue that. And so that's why this is movement work and it is called movement work. Um, and Harriet Tubman is one of my sheroes um, because she was led by God, but she was also radical and fierce, right? She was like praying with the gun in her hand, you know? And so, um, and, and she went back for her people. She was selfless. It was not about her. She had her freedom, but right. she went back over and over and over again, sacrificing her life and sacrificing her freedom for those people. And so the Alliance for Police Accountability, the essence of it is really a needs-based organization who unapologetically fights for black and brown people with black and brown people um, and beside black and brown people, because those are the people that the system targets, right? And so we are, um, and we do it authentically. Um, and it's the only to do it, in my opinion, if you're going to get real progress. Um, but we started out, if you hear the name, very single issue focused, right? Alliance for Police Accountability. The goal was if we hold police accountable, you know, maybe we could rebuild a relationship. Um, you know, we could have a better relationship, but people could see that police officers got held accountable. Maybe they could believe in the system. But we learned very quickly um, that it was bigger than that. And so we've expanded to an organization that is focused on reconstructing the criminal legal system in all of its intersections. Um, and that caused us to start a PAC, right? Because it's one thing to deal with the issues, but what about the people who are in charge of making these decisions? Um, my life's work so far in the past 13 years has really been dedicated to removing this current district attorney because you can hit the streets every day. You can write him letters to your blue in the face. This man is never going to give you what you want. Right, he just does what he wants. And when you bump into that, people become hopeless and upset and you have to find a different way. And I, the way is he doesn't have to be there, he's elected, right? Let's get him out of there if we don't want him there. And that's what we've been working on this year. Um, as Chief B stated, he lost the primary in May um, and we still have November 7th to worry about. But as an organization, our model has always been advocacy, we will advocate for any family that we find is being served in injustice, but we also educate the community around that issue, right? Because you want to recreate leaders. I don't want to be the leader. The organization doesn't want to be the leader. We want to be the leader in, in building community and building a community of people, of leaders um, to fight for these issues, uh, because that's the only way we're going to continue. And we also change policy, right? It's one thing to hit the streets to protest, but we are now protesting, getting people behind changing laws. Uh, we were able to ban solitary confinement in our local jail by referendum. We got it on a ballot. We had to get 66,000 signatures to get it passed. And we did that, right? And so we cannot do this issue-based work without focus on electoral politics. 
And that's the biggest thing that I want to get across to people is that you have to build relationships. You have to work with people you don't like, work with people you don't want to work with. Um, you have to really focus on changing policies um, out here. Um, and you have to be, you, you have to be able to be um, okay with yourself because people will get, try to get you to change who you are. They will try to get you to change what your mission is, try to get you to change what your focus is because it's easier the other way, right? It's easier and you get more friends on the other side, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to save lives. We're here to change the trajectory of black life in this country, in particular in Pittsburgh where we are in Allegheny County. And we're also here to seize power, right? So run for office y'all. <laughs> you know, talk about season power. Um, so to my listening audience, Brandy Fisher puts her money in her where her mouth is. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we think about just financial dollars. But all while you're doing this, you're actually the campaign manager. Like you said, you know what? If I if I'm telling you to run for office, I'm going to see what I can do to put the right people in office. So that, you know what, that's how you dismantle it. You take one of them out, put one of us in, right? So you were a campaign manager for the first time, if I'm correct, um, for a local politician um, and used everything you had learned about your grassroots efforts to successfully navigate that space, if I'm correct. Come on, talk yes. to me, sister. Yeah, you know, because I understand why we don't believe in politics, right? Because they've never they've never worked for us, you know? And so people are like, voting, why? I get it. But it's because of the people who are put in office. And we and that's why we have to choose our own folks. We have to choose the people that we want to be there. You could run for office. And that's what we tell people. And not only do we preach it, we practice it. And so, you know, yes, we have a, uh, we had a city council person here who was always over-policing. Um, was the head of where the worst zone, police zone existed and still exists to this day, in my opinion, in the city of Pittsburgh, zone five. Um, and that was his area. And he's horrible. And he's black. And he was horrible. Um, and so we were like, we need somebody different in the seat. We need somebody new in the seat. Um, and one of my mentors, and since I was doing his work in 2010 in politics, finally agreed to run for office and um, asked me to, to manage the campaign. Now, I had worked on many campaigns, you know, Summer Lee's campaign. Um, that's really, I got most of my experience in working on all of her campaigns, um, but I've never was the campaign manager. And so to take on such a job was a really big deal for me, but it also let me see, and I think the community to see that we have more power than we realize. And we have more knowledge than we realize. And this stuff is not above our heads. Right. It seems like it. But when you get into it, it's really not above our heads. And so it, it's very it was very powerful, very exciting. I'm embarking on my next campaign now um, because I do like it, you know. And what do I like about it? People are like, who likes the campaign? I like season power. Right. I like strategically, you know, saying that you thought that we were just these little people who was going to stay in the street screaming and having a temper tantrum because that's how they looked at it. Um, and now you no longer have a job. <laughs> so wait a minute. Do my listeners get to hear it here first? Who your who would you, who your next campaign person is, um, or is that just in your back pocket until you're ready to pull that card out? 
Well, no, Miss Ashley Comins is running um, for state representative. Uh, we lost Summer Lee um, to, in that seat uh, because she we didn't lose her, but we lost her in that seat because she went to be Congresswoman. Um, and so, some lady, Abigail Salisbury, some white lady who was just not doing what she needs to be doing, was never the right person, got in there from a special election, right? So she wasn't elected by the people. She was elected by the Allegheny County Democratic Committee. And so now that seat is up for the public election, for the people to vote in who they want. And, you know, we're going to make sure Ms. Ashley Comins, we need to get that seat back. Um, and, you know, it's very important. And so, you know, strategically, you know, I've learned along the way. I didn't always do the right thing. Sometimes I look at old videos and I'm like, who is that person? And what was she talking about? Um, <laughs> poor baby. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, it is, it really, what I, what I learned a lot about is something that we really want to embark upon um, teaching our youth. And that is strategy. We have to move strategically. And we ha and, it, and it's a whole pie. It's not one way, right? Protesting alone is not going to get it, but it's necessary. Voting alone is not going to get it, but it's necessary. Um, supporting the right people to be in office alone is not going to get it, but it's necessary. And building the right relationships with people have been in these positions, right? You know, people thought that I should not deal with police officers. I'm like, how am I ever going to understand where they're coming from, what their culture is, or what's going on if I'm not, right? You cannot um, try to change something and don't and know nothing about it um, and be successful at it. And so all of those things together is what breeds success. No one thing is going to do it. But when you mix that ingredient, it's like that sugar alone might taste nasty. That salt by itself is kind of gross. But when you mix all these ingredients together, you can, voila, have a, a, a decent meal. It's the same thing when it comes to this work. One thing alone can be sour. It's not going to work. And people will tell you that you have the wrong way. You might just need a little more things added to it. So I just want to encourage people who are in the fight um, to continue fighting and not to be discouraged. And to find out what you're missing, be humble enough to know if you're doing something wrong and to admit that it might not be the best way. Because it's not always about right or wrong. It just might not be the best way for this moment. And also, this work is real and it's serious, right? Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know, um, Harriet, even Harriet Tubman, these, this was not a long time ago, right? right. Um, the, the, the Move Nine getting bombed in Philadelphia, this was not a long time ago. This was in my parents' lifetime. And so these people are still out here and they still have the same mission. They have the mission to hold on to the power because they know we're coming for it. And we have a mission to seize that power and we're getting it. And so it is possible um, as long as you connect with the right people. So connecting with the right people. So I don't want our listeners to think that we've always gotten along. We have had some very- And we don't heated. always get along every day right now. <laughs> We have had some heated discussions, right, about, you know, again, we both learn from each other um, because although I've been, you know, probably one of the most liberal leftists, like, you know, we don't take them a lot of NWA sisters when it comes to this policing work. Um, that doesn't mean that I haven't seen how some parts of the system are supposed to work and have advocated for that as well. And, have, you know, I've probably been the one who's become more radical since we started, whereas I was more reform. I'm now dismantle. 
Uh, you're more, you were dismantled and said, hey, let's see what we can, what might work for us if we do this differently, right? So we haven't always gotten along, but the one thing we both have agreed upon that this is about the next generation of youth being empowered to be the voices. And part of that um, Alliance for Police Accountability has started a community center in the, the heart of downtown Pittsburgh where they thought our children and think our children are savage, disposable, um, not worth caring for, all need to be locked up. They're spending, what, $50 million to rehab the juvenile center that has been closed forever. Like, it sounds very much like the 1990s Clinton comments about our children. You know, they're often one step from calling our kids super predators again. Um, and people are okay with that. Um, you're like, no, that's not okay. These, these are our babies. And if you don't give them a place to go to be safe, healthy, and happy, and to thrive, Alliance for Police Accountability will take that so that these kids never have to enter into the criminal legal system, which is the best way versus whatever district attorney you have there. Don't ever have them having contact. Talk to me about that that center um, and bring that home for me. Well, you know, um, we have, um, because of the lack of investment in the education of our children, um, they are on our public transportation when they come from school. And the buses all come downtown Pittsburgh. And so we have about 2,100 youth every day traveling through downtown Pittsburgh. Um, and they expect there not to be a problem or a fight, right? I mean, they're from all different places, 2,100 kids down here at the same time. Um, and so with their answer to whatever after-school fights might happen, and even if there wasn't fights, they just didn't like the kids hanging in crowds. The businesses were complaining, right, and saying we have to get these kids from around our businesses. Or if the kids wanted to go into the business because they get to downtown at 6 in the morning and their school doesn't open till 7, you know, Starbucks is open. So they would go in there, use the free Wi-Fi, and be warm. They're like, you're not spending money, you're loitering. So they're calling the police on them. So um, their response to our youth was hiring 18 new police officers. We know what that means. That means that kids are just going to get arrested. They also, in this new juvenile detention center, is private. It's a privatized juvenile detention center, um, which means you have to have a, kids arrested in order for it to stay open. Right. Um, and so we've seen this coming. And so we just opened a space downtown. We named it after Jordan Miles. It's the J. Miles Youth Engagement Center, um, where it, we're going to be a safe space for ages 13 to 19 is our target. But we accept up to age 24 because our definition of youth goes according to brain development. Right. When you can make sound decisions and responsible decisions for yourself. And trauma really needs to make that go up to 30 because trauma kind of, you know, stops people's development on course. Um, but we're very excited about it. And the youth are as well. Right now, our program director is out here downtown with a table up, up right now with five of organizations doing recruitment. Um, and the kids are really excited. We're going to be equipped with a studio and podcast room um, so that youth can learn how to, to, to use their voice in the same way that we're doing right now. We're going to have a wellness room um, because mental health is real, right? And it does impact a lot of our youth and it goes unchecked and unnoticed. So we'll have a mental health specialist here two days a week. We'll have a full-time social worker 
And then we have their lounge that they get to create. We're hiring for youth right now to come design the space. We have arcades in here. Um, and we're going to be partnering with a lot of other organizations to come in and to teach. Um, we're partnering with Key Bank to teach financial literacy. We're um, partnering with the EAT Initiative so they can learn how to make healthy meals for themselves. Um, you know, like life skills and things that you need, um, you know, for your life. And we're going to have, you know, monthly what we call Sunday meals where we sit around the same table and we all eat and talk because, you know, it's, I grew up with that. And that's where we learned a lot about each other, what was going on. Um, and we're also going to have something, we're going to have a citywide debate team. We're really excited about starting a citywide debate team because one thing we say is to meet the youth where they are. But once we meet them there, we're supposed to bring them up. We're not supposed to stay there. And a lot of these programs are meeting the youth where they are, but they're just staying there forever and are not helping our kids elevate. And so, you know, our idea of this, um, the, this debate team is you get competition, so it's fun, but you learn about public speaking, critical thinking, um, you know, and, and how to... Um, and how to argue in a healthy way, right? It prepares them to be political officials, attorneys, um, you know, just giving them those skills to be able to communicate. And so we're really excited about the programming that we're going to have here, about the youth that are going to be here. Um, and we've partnered with the city to say, if there's any child that law enforcement encounters downtown, bring them to us instead of arresting them. And so we're also going to be a place to divert the youth to, to prevent them from entering the carceral system. Because mass incarceration starts with the youth. It starts when you're young. And right now they are targeting our youth and they are using us to do it as well. Like we're really pretty much brainwashed when it comes to our young people. We find ourselves repeating what the media says about our own children. And that is what they are. They are children and we have to remember that. And what they need is love. They need us to love on them. The hardest child, love can break down. I know. <laughs> Amen. So to our listening audience, um, I'm going to ask one last question. You know, I know how I can help. Uh, this sister has me coming back to Pittsburgh. Listen to y'all. For board meetings, I am on the board. I am willing to leverage my personal and professional reputation um, to bring people in to support the organization. And you all know I don't get involved in any organizations I don't believe in. Um, how can the everyday person help Alliance for Police Accountability? I mean, you know, of course, um, one of our, the most powerful thing we can have is independent funding, right? So we're able to do what we want um, with the money, like pay the youth um, and buy them food and get them menstrual pads and different things that they need because they just don't have access to a lot of that stuff. So we do a lot of mutual aid. So to, of course, you know, we all need funding and money. Um, the other thing is, you know, really go on our website and join our contact list and join the advocacy. You know, our advocacy is going to reach as far as um, federal right now. Um, and so we could use people's help, right, of writing letters when we need it. I mean, this stuff really makes a difference and it really matters and it gets people's attention. So just signing up for a contact list so you can be one of the people we can reach out to when it comes to call to actions, because we are about action. We are an action-oriented organization. Um, and volunteering. I mean, if you're here in Allegheny County, um, we could use volunteers. We could use attorneys um, because we're, we, we need attorneys a lot. Um, and I always tell people anything that you do is useful for this organization, whether you're an artist, 
um, you know, or a doctor, right? Because, uh, you know, you're needed here. And so to volunteer your time and services um, really would help us as well. So donate, sign up for our contact list so you can advocate from where you are at home. Um, and also, you know, come down and join us here in downtown Pittsburgh and get in with the kids, you know, help us advocate. And we do, we call Rochelle all the way from where she's at to come up here for this meeting with the Lord, with the mayor. Like I need you to sit here and tell them X, Y, and Z, you know? And so, and she does that. And she's a fierce advocate um, because often what they like to tell you is that you're not a law enforcement officer. You're not an expert as if we don't know what we're talking about. And so I get to bring her in and be like, bam. Um, <laughs> and, and, and they know when she comes, she's coming. You know, um, you do say the one thing about us, all of us, we are experts in our own lived experience. We are experts in our own lived experience. And I don't need anybody else to, to tell me any differently. I want to thank you, a huge thank you to my guest, CEO, President, Fierce Mama, you know, um, Brandy Fisher, the president of uh, the Alliance for Police Accountability. Thank you for coming. And I look forward to the next time in person that our paths cross again. Be well. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Executive producers, Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production.